Welcome to Faith and Labor, which is a podcast video series exploring the history of Catholic social teachings and how it can be used to bridge divisions and guide humanity to solve the great challenges facing the working class. Hosted by John Andrzejczyk of Labor Lines, and my name is Evan Papp of Empathy Media Lab, where we will discuss history, scripture, encyclicals, current events, and how faith and love is needed to strengthen solidarity and heal a world in disarray. In episode three, we'll focus on Gadium et Spes, which means joy and hope, and was published after the Second Vatican Council. And we will also discuss current headlines related to Pope Francis's trip to Iraq, the Vatican's stance against same-sex unions, and the Catholic Labor Network's support for the PRO Act. John, how are you doing? I'm doing well. And I, I, once again, I'm, I, I'm just honored to be part of this. And right, bringing love, you know, what's I just was listening the other day, and what's the three greatest virtues, faith, hope, and love. And Paul said, love is the greatest. So here we are. So again, and, and as you can see in my background, we have daylight on my end with the, uh, with, between the changing of seasons and good old daylight savings time. I want to hear about your experience during the Second Vatican Council. And that was held from 1963 to 1965. And Pope John the 23rd said that it was time to open the windows of the church and let in some fresh air, quote unquote. And they were really looking at a time of moving the Catholic Church from an internal view to really kind of spreading the message outside of itself. Well, yes. So I was I was born in 1955. So I was young, but our family encouraged literacy. We back back in the day, I grew up in Chicago. We 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 had both daily newspapers. I actually was reading a newspaper then, sometimes over my dad's shoulder. And we had television news, you know, famous three stations back then, Walter Cronkite and all. It was it was news. It was news all the time that was called. It was news that when it was brought together. And uh, I was going to a Catholic school, parochial school, what we called back then grade school, one through eighth. And we went to a very substantial parish in Chicago. And right in front of us, we saw the changes. As I mentioned earlier, when I was in seventh grade, our sisters teaching our grade school were in habits. And in eighth grade, many were out, were in quasi-lay or, or, or quasi-habits. And the Catholic Church was very active in the civil rights movement. And as I mentioned, we had actually a priest that went down to the South on a freedom ride, took his life in his own hands. So we saw changes in mass going from Latin to the vernacular to English, in our case, the communion rail, which people probably don't even know what that was, where you went to get uh, our communion, you knelt, and the priest went down. It was a rail literally separating you from the altar. That was gone, and the priest turned around and faced us now as, as opposed to facing away from us. And uh, the music also, along with the actual liturgy being in a vernacular, the music was in the language, again, English. And, uh, and completely changed, really completely changed. I, I wouldn't say popularized, but more accessible and much, uh, much easier to partake in. Yeah, I spoke to my mom before this episode and she told me about all the masses being in Latin and then the actual readings would be in Latin. <laughs> and then on the other side, they would have English translation. And so you'd be following it around. So everyone, every Catholic church around the world had it in Latin at that time which made it very inaccessible because not many people understand Latin. And this, this change is, is kind of shows also how the church does evolve and does respond, yet there's always this tension within the church to maintain tradition and being conservative. But if it's too conservative, it won't 
may remain relevant with a lot of the times to to the people and so it, it's about that balance between the eternal and the temporal and it, it's a very interesting balance and it's interesting you know and, it, and it's still going on as we mentioned before we got recording is there's still reactionary forces i mean tradition is part of the church teaching we say we're not solo scripta we're not solely scripture we we accept a tradition, the magisterium, the 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 body of teachings in the church, which we're discussing today, and we discuss with the encyclicals, and and so you have that going on with that. But you know, there's still people reacting to that. The Vatican II and the leadership of the church made a conscious decision to face outward, and you know, you could see that represented by the priest facing us. But what we're going to talk about soon, you see, the church could have gone two ways, but they they turned around and embraced the world, making the decision that Christ came to earth. You know, we accept Christ as, as God and man, you know, that our God chose to to live the human life. And so it's an embrace of, of the world and embrace humanity. So let's get into it with Gaudium et Spes, and it's the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world. And there were actually four constitutions resulting from the Second Vatican Council in 1964, but this was the last and the longest published document from the council and is the first constitution published by an ecumenical council to address the entire world, so outside of the Catholic Church. So what are some of the things that stand out uh, to you, John? Well, I, you know, one of the quotes I have here is the fundamental finality of the production is not the mere increase of products nor profit or control, but rather the service of man. And our faith says that defending the, the dignity of all humanity by looking at, in this part of the Constitution, the impact of economics, of industrialization, of, of such forces. And we're often guided on this program for the first several shows, or probably the first six to eight shows from the Catholic Labor Network. And they focus on this document. And uh, mm -hmm. let me just read what they wrote. The council declared that the right to form labor unions without fear of retaliation, a basic human right, quote, among the basic rights of the human person is to be numbered the right of freely founding unions for working people. These should be able truly to represent them and to contribute to the organizing of economic life in the right way. Included is the right of freely taking part in the activity of these unions without risk of reprisal. And that's in uh, paragraph 68. So I, I, I really find that encouraging to see the Catholic Church being so supportive of unionization. Right, and, sp and it speaks to the times we have lived through, both you and I, a gener maybe a generation apart or so, that when we see what business and organizations throw at the effort to unionize, and the, and the church is calling these out directly, specifically, the language is unavoidable. So when a company spends its money, forces the workers to attend meetings against union votes when they fire a person for speaking out towards in favor of organizing their workplace, of forming a union, they are in direct contradiction with this pillar of the church teaching. More emphatic, uh, more powerful, more important to the Catholic Church even than the encyclicals we talked about earlier. This is, this is a constitutional embedded in the teaching of the church. And it brings back the question of natural law and 
this idea that unions are a part of our organizing principle. It's almost that without unions, we're going to be a bunch of individuals almost in this state mm -hmm. of nature. And through this union, it's almost this communitarian approach of bringing people together, working together towards a common goal and striving towards that common goal. And I, I just love the idea that when this goes into natural law, then it means if you don't have unions, you're always going to have this exploitation. You're always going to have this system, this Babylonian system almost of throwing humans on the trash heap of you know, history. So I, I really do appreciate that. Right, and, 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 and we've talked about this in uh, earlier episodes when church teachings directly and emphatically challenged the idea that if a worker agrees to, to you, they didn't use this term, I'll use it, say subhuman conditions, because of their condition, because of the conditions that exist, it's not justified. And it, and it, is, it is the person that employs them that is in the wrong. And it's a grievous wrong, as the church calls it. So once again, the church recognizes unions and recognizes it being as a force part of society and, 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 and to a degree outside of, of government, that it has to operate. It, it's uh, as Pope John Paul, we'll talk about this in other episodes, John Paul II calls it indispensable. Unions are an indispensable part of society. And in chapter 66, they also look at workers and immigrants. And mm -hmm. I'll quote, when workers come from another country or district and contribute to the economic advancement of a nation or region by their labor, all discrimination as regards wages and working conditions must be carefully avoided. All the people, moreover, above all the public authorities must treat them not as mere tools of production, but as persons and must help them to bring their families to live with them and to provide themselves with decent dwelling. They must also see to it that these workers are incorporated into the social life of the country or region that receives them. That's an incredible statement. And how far has the so-called right moved away from this? Absolutely. And, and, you know, and when, when they speak about a Judeo-Christian uh, foundation to our culture, our society, our laws, this is bedrock in uh, Judaism. Uh, I have even read that the interpretation of Sodom and Gomorrah was not that God called down punishment on that city for their sexual acts, but for their rejection of the stranger. The, the, the desert culture where all three religions rose from, Jay's Christianity and Islam play great score on how the stranger was treated. And you find this through the Old Testament and the New, the Good Samaritan, the Matthew 25, the least of the brothers. Yeah. Uh, the church does recognize that a state has the right and obligation to have functional borders, but not to exploit the people coming through. That's not the function of the border. So there's this concept that Frederick Douglass articulated about the difference between chattel slavery and wage slavery, where chattel slavery is actually where you have someone in full bondage and full control of that person. And then wage slavery is where that person is not free, but they still live this hand to mouth existence. Mm -hmm. And in chapter 67, they actually talk about worker slaves. And let me quote, it happens too often, however, even in our days, that workers are reduced to the level of being slaves to their own work. This is by no means justified by the so-called economic laws. The entire process of productive work, therefore, must be adapted to the needs of the person and to his way of life. And so this is in the 1960s, and they're bringing out the word slavery. 
you know, mm -hmm. where a lot of people only think that slavery, you know, was abolished in 1864 in the Emancipation Proclamation. And the fact is, if you are working hand to mouth and you do not have the ability to walk away because out of necessity, then you are what Frederick Douglass would term as a wage slave. It's, and you're not a free man. And that's how many of us are in that category today. Right, and we saw this, we see this through the uh, labor history of the United States with company towns where you never got out of debt, Harlan County, you'll never leave Harlan County alive. You, you're stuck there. And uh, the church also calls for work to be more well above simple survival. So once again, against this idea of being a wage slave, that, that work so important in the human condition must lead to the full development of humanity physically, mentally, emotionally, culturally, in their family. So it's the full development of humanity, once again, because the church looks upon each and every one of us, and here's the challenge for, for people, to see the Christ in all of us. And in chapter 68, it mentions it, uh, about strikes and saying that there should be a sincere dialogue between the parties but a strike nevertheless can remain even in present day circumstances, a necessary though ultimate aid for the defense of the worker's own rights and the fulfillment of their just desires. So it's a union and the ability to wield the power of the union, which is to withhold labor in a strike. And it's interesting fellow travelers there with all due respect to the church fathers you would find in international workers of the world, the Wobblies, Marxists, Leninists, and, and you know, we get to be around all of them in the worker movement, in the popular front, that they would say the exact same thing. The strike is the ultimate weapon because it deprived the capitalist of their ultimate tool, and that's labor, surplus labor. It, and in 65, 66, when this came out, you were still seeing a strike being used in the United States, but it was on a remarkable decline and uh, peaked in actually right after World War II and then was uh, severely hampered in the 1947 Taft-Hartley Act, which I encourage anyone listening to really look into that. But it, it uh, secondary strikes, boycotts, took all the peaceful firepower out of the labor movement. And it was also part of... Uh, the purging of the labor movement. But you saw the steady decline in strikes peaking, I believe, well, after World War II was the real peak, but then the last time the peak was 79.80, we saw kind of an uptick in 2018, 2019. That's when I started my radio show. I was so excited about this uptick in strikes, over 400,000 in 18, led in large part by teachers and healthcare workers both industries which are heavily employ women, both in leadership and in rank and file. But in 2020, it's a remarkable decline. And uh, with that, you could see the decline in union uh, density in the United States as it got weaker and weaker from a number of reasons. But again, the removal of the strike and the church recognizing the need for it to be used ultimately, if that's the case. Similar to like the just war, position that if, if it, it, as a last resort. So 69, it talks about hunger and says, since there are so many people prostrate with hunger in the world, this sacred council urges all both individuals and governments to remember the aphorism of the fathers, feed the man dying of hunger, because if you have not fed him, you have killed him. So it's taking responsibility for each other 
and each other's deprivations and, and necessities. And if we are, we are each other's brother's keeper. And that, that idea is very, very strong. And then the, in chapter 85, they do talk about developing nations saying developing nations will not be able to procure material assistance unless radical changes are made in the established procedure, procedures of modern world commerce. Other aid should be provided as well by advanced nations in the form of gifts, loans, or financial investments. Such help should be accorded with generosity and without greed on the one side and received with complete honesty on the other side. If an authentic economic order is to be established on a worldwide basis, an end will have to be put to profiteering, to national ambitions, to the appetite for political supremacy, to militaristic calculations, and to machinations for the sake of spreading and imposing ideologies. So obviously there's a Cold War going on during that time as well. And, right. But it still remains, I think, central to the idea of built in Fratelli Tutti with Pope Francis is this idea that we need to create this dialogue and we need to respect each other and the dignity of everyone everywhere. Right, yeah, right. I mean, we look at it, it's, it's like, how far have we gone there? They called for that in the, in the 60s. And then all we have to do is look at the economic crisis brought about in the third world. And you mentioned that earlier in some other episodes, you know, with the oil shock in the 70s and calling in the loans that were given to these countries. And the first thing they cut was a social network, a social services, the rise of reemergence of authoritarian governments or worse, Chile, probably one of the most heinous examples, Pinochet, it actually staggered, I mean, it overwhelms me when I think of what happened there, you know, the rise of neoliberal capitalism. So these mechanisms were put in place or, or were geared up, if you will, world banks, different engines, but they missed, they missed all that part about being freely given and honestly received. Absolutely. And we need to keep agitating as we're doing with this podcast and, and keep trying to build network and solidarity with people here and, and elsewhere as well. So yes. do you have anything else on the Gaudium et Spes, John? Well, I like to say that the church teaching in general, you know, you don't come to it hoping to have your viewpoint, your understanding reinforced, because it, it just might not, it might just not work that way. And let's keep open-minded about the teachings. You know, what did they say? The church is there to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. So, and it's not there to form the conscience, but inform the conscience. And like you said, you know, it's, it's here to ch challenge us and there is not always going to be uniformity because there are a lot of different factions and there's also history and the background going on as well. So it, it's a very, you know, rich, rich history of, of power and religion and belief. And yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated with this, this project mm -hmm. that we're, we've undertaken. Yep. Very good. Been learning a lot. And so Moving to current events, Yes, Pope Francis, he visited Iraq, and obviously this is in the backdrop of the U.S. invasion, mm -hmm. completely destroying Iraq, and then the, the Islamic State rising and mm -hmm. also doing additional destruction. But Pope Francis was there from March 4th to March 8th, and on that four-day visit, he stopped in Mosul, was once a stronghold of the Islamic State, 
militant group where he prayed for Iraq's war victims in a city square. He also traveled to Karakash, an ancient Christian town that had been overrun by Islamic State forces and met with members of the local community at the Church of the Immaculate Conception. He also celebrated an open air mass at the Franco Hariri Stadium in Erbil with 10,000 people there despite the limitations with COVID restrictions. And he had a meeting with Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani in Najaf. And Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani is a 90-year-old Muslim. He's a Shia. And he is, in some ways, one of the contenders for influence in the Shia religion, with Iran's Ayatollah Khomeini being the other one, who's 81 years old. So that was also a pretty interesting stop. And he, he was talking about the, the need to promote dialogue. But I, I just want to hear what your thoughts are uh, on this trip and you know, all of the implications that we may be able to read into it. It was it very, it was fascinating. We followed it at home here, but we listened to some reports on a podcast called Inside the Vatican from America, the Jesuit Journal, which I highly recommend. Their journalist there, Gerard O'Connell, went with the Pope. He's been traveling with a number of Popes over the decades. and listened to some firsthand accounts of the Christians there. The Christian community was decimated, that they were in better shape under Saddam Hussein. Uh, to me, the backdrop is the Iraq war. We have a family member that uh, went there. And it, it, so John Paul II opposed the invasion of Iraq, sent his spokesperson, uh, Papal Nuncio, to meet with George Bush and express this. And, and George Bush didn't listen to him. Uh, so much is on the hands of the United States when you look at the wreckage there. Literally, the church is blown apart. But to see Francis there, you know, not in the best health, 80-some years old, Saratica making him limp. And another historic footnote that the St. Francis, the founder of the Franciscans, actually traveled there, which we think must be pretty amazing in about the 16th, 15th, or 16th century, traveled there. So that's interesting. But I think probably, so he uplifted the, Christ, the, Catholic, the Christian community there, which is truly varied a lot of different sects under the banner of Christianity, but his meeting with the Muslim cleric, who's, like you say, at high regard, is exemplary and continues to move forward the church's effort towards ecumenicalism. And uh, Francis actually spoke because the worst sin of, of all is hatred. I was just becoming an adult around the time of 9-11. I was just coming out of college, 22, and... I, the run-up to the Iraq War by the following summer, I, everything I was reading of the alternative press was that a lot of, that the decision was pretty much already made and that the Bush-Cheney regime had decided to fight a war of choice that led to what some have estimated over a million Iraqi deaths, right. thousands of American soldiers dead, maimed, psychologically, physically, and I don't ever want to have hate. I don't ever want to have hate, but I am still very angry about those decisions and how much pain and destruction is brought in the world and it's opened up a Pandora's box in so many different ways. And I don't believe in revenge, but I do believe in justice and I do believe in the need for reconciliation. And I still think we need a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that shows that what was done, that George W. Bush is a war criminal, 
everyone that he was around is war criminals. They knew it was wrong. They didn't resign. They continued on. And what is so insulting is that for the last 18 years, there's been no, no accounting for the, right. these transgressions. And many of these people have been rehabilitated and many Americans, I, I was listening to a teacher recently and she was talking about the Iraq war and everyone, most of the students thought that 9-11 was blamed on Iraq. Right. And so the, the full complete circle of the propaganda where next generations don't even understand what, what we did and what happened. So I'm going to the grave with my pursuit of justice and reconciliation by at least making more and more people aware of who are the war criminals involved in this. And I still hold Barack Obama accountable for the look ahead and not look behind. I do understand it's very challenging and you could rip apart a country uh, trying to do that. And I guess in some ways, you know, seeing what Pope Francis is dealing with, you can understand the point of view of trying to look ahead. And But however, if you don't deal with the injustices of the past, they're just gonna sit and fester and grow in, in a cancerous tumor. So we still have to deal with a lot of these things in the American past. I'd I, I like to add to this. I know we're getting into some time here, Evan. I was, so in 9-11, I was in my 50s. The Iraq war, the gears of the Iraq war started on 9-12, 9-12. And even some of the people that couldn't take it anymore with Bush, I'm trying to think it was Clark came out and he said, in 9-12, they started talking about Iraq. And he said, what are you guys talking about? Yeah, General uh, Wesley Clark. Yeah, and so, and here we are in faith and labor. And I just want to say the ultimate assault, the solidarity among workers is war. When it's worker against worker, war can be justified. You know, I'm, I'm proud of the role my father played in the defeat in Nazi Germany. He witnessed the death camps. He liberated a slave labor camp. At, with a pistol and made the uh, people in this town open up their food stores. But anyways, you know, people say, well, why, why are we relitigating the Iraq war? I said, well, well, I'll say so. Well, we didn't litigate it in the first place. Let's litigate it first. Or like you say, a truth and justice. I agree with you 100%. And it's very alarming and disappointing and saddening to see how it's celebrated now that somehow it's a good act, that it's a healing act that our current president literally restored the portrait of George Bush into the White House, though we know it wasn't taken down for the Iraq war. I just hope that our current president will emulate his predecessor, who without with all his flaws or worse, at least didn't start another war. But again, I agree with you 100%. It, it was a war crime. I am, you know, President Obama failed and failed miserably because again, it, it puts us at the risk of it happening again. Yeah. Such a heavy subject. And I, I didn't know I was going to get so emotional just uh, talking no, about guess, it, but just bringing uh, it back up. It, it's, it's there and there is a collective trauma in, in our culture, but we can leave it at that and maybe yeah. talk about it in future episodes. Hmm. So we did experience something that you and I were talking about before we started recording about the Vatican's stance against same-sex unions. And according to the Associated Press, the Vatican's orthodoxy office, the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, issued a formal response to a question about whether Catholic clergy have the authority to bless gay unions. 
The note distinguished between the church's welcoming and blessing of gay people, which it upheld, but not their unions. And so the Vatican holds that gay people must be treated with dignity and respect, but that gay sex is intrinsically disordered, quote unquote. And Catholic teaching says that marriage is a lifelong union between a man and a woman. It's part of God's plan and is intended for the sake of creating new life. So I'm going to just throw it back to you right there, John. Well, in our family, my wife and I, we were saddened by it. I mean, I, 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 there's a few things I want to say. For one thing, Pope Francis did say that he's not opposed to civil unions. He, he actually says they have a gay couples, all couples uh, have a right to a civil union, which was the court's ruling. Actually, Oberfeld was that the, that the state can't stop a couple from joint, from marrying. So he was emphatic at that. You know, he spoke openly of not want to judge about other people, homosexuality, just others in general, which is very good and very encouraging. So, we, but the idea that a priest can't bless the couple is hard to take. I will say that it's hard to take. Again, once again, I, I St. Francis, a couple takes on it though, is that people have to understand that we can see a schism in the church. If, if you look at the church and understand it in different parts, not in the United States and Europe, but like the African church, uh, very homophobic. Uh, we've had cardinals that not only are silent about anti-gay uh, laws, but encourage anti-gay laws. The uh, uh, bishops and cardinals, they encourage criminal penalties against gay acts. And so the, the Pope has to take that into consideration, I will say that. Uh, but personally, I'll just put it this way, I think we're we just going to have to pray. We're going to have to pray. And again, faith, hope, and love, and love is the greatest. Yeah, and you just think about how many people who are either gay or have a loved one who they know is gay, how is this going to affect their view of the Catholic Church? Right. How are, are they, they're going to look at the Catholic Church as bigoted and at least the way the, the press is covering it because, you know, the, the big headlines was that the Catholic mm -hmm. Church came out against it, but there is some um, nuance in the actual Absolutely. And obviously with Pope Francis, he is battling a very conservative right-wing uh, faction that he's trying to hold off. Mm -hmm. And how, however, though, this, this you know, at, at saving the Catholic Church in more conservative countries, he's also, the Catholic Church is going to have a much harder time, I think, growing the number uh, in the congregation if it does not embrace and, and bring, bring the, the love for others into the church and even the blessings of their unions. But it, it is a very, yeah, I, I, I agree. I guess it's just praying. It's, it's tough. It's tough business for us. We just have to look at Christ and, and see his message yeah. against all of this. Doesn't even mention yeah. homosexuality. What's it, what's he talk about? He, he doesn't, he didn't whip the homosexuals out of the temple. He whipped the, the, the bankers out of the temple. Money right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Love my neighbor yeah. and, unless they're money. Yeah. Right, right. And who is thy neighbor? And, you know, and the, the Samaritan did check to see uh, what that beaten travel was about. You know, it's uh, the church's is humanity. And again, our God chose to be human. So ultimately the love will prevail. I'm absolutely certain. So to end on a more positive note, on the idea that the Catholic Labor Network is supporting the PRO Act, and the PRO Act is the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, which just passed, I, I believe it just passed the House of Representatives, or it's about to be voted on. 
And we need to whip the Democrats in the Senate to get behind it, even if they have to remove the filibuster. And so the statement from the Catholic Labor Network, and we're going to put this in the show notes that you can use their form to contact your representative, says, for 130 years, the Catholic Church has taught the workers have the right to organize and unions to defend their rights. And it goes on, the repeated calls issued within the church's social doctrine, beginning with Rerum Novarum, which we've discussed in this program for the promotion of workers associations that can defend their rights must be honored today even more than in the past. And so unfortunately in the United States, too many workers are disciplined or fired when they try to organize in unions. Too many gig workers at employers like Uber and Lyft have been misclassified as independent contractors without a legal right to join a union. And as a result, union membership has declined from one in three private sector workers in the 1950s to one in 16 today. And real wages for workers have stagnated for nearly 50 years, not to mention the great growing inequality between the haves and have nots. So the Protecting the Right to Organize or PRO Act, HR 842, addresses these injustices, adding real penalties when employers retaliate against workers who exercise their rights. Give, they, it would give gig workers the right to form unions and bargain collectively. And the PRO Act will once again make the right to organize real in the United States, answering the call of Amos to let justice surge like waters and righteousness like an unfailing stream. So please tell your congressional representatives to support the passage of the PRO Act and we'll put that in the show notes as well. We mentioned Taft-Hartley in 1947. This is the most significant proposed change to labor law since 1947, which was act to undermine the labor worker movement. And the way I'm gonna look at it in the sphere of the worker movement is under the Catholic teaching of omission and commission. So if someone votes against it, that's commission. But if they don't stand for it, if they work against it in death by little cuts, I'm going to do everything I can to, to draw that attention to that also. We're long past the time where you, you get to sit on the rail, in my opinion. You got either you're going to be with the worker or against the worker. I mean, these are critical times we're living in. Organized labor, yeah, like you said, a less than 10% in the private sector, you know, and I tell my co-workers, I said, when the unions are gone, it's going to be like the sun coming up in the West, as the world will be completely changed. It'll be like pole reversal. So, yeah, that's a great end note. I encourage people and, and check out Catholic Labor Network. We hope to, we actually hope to get them on the program. So, but in interim, anyone listening to this, a, a great organization, They and they've been doing this work for a long time. Great. That's that's all I have. Uh, any other thoughts in closing? No, just once again, it was great. It, it is encouraging to, to get this out and uh, we'll see what the world is in a couple of weeks. So thank you for watching and listening to episode three of Faith and Labor. We would love to hear your feedback, ideas, and suggested guests for future shows as we seek to promote what Pope Francis described in Fratelli Tutti, a more just and fraternal world where love shatters the chains that keep us isolated and separate in their place. It builds bridges. So thanks again, John, for all thanks, that Evan. you're doing. And I'm learning a lot through this. Same here. So I'm, I'm honored to be part of it. Mm -hmm.